Hi there, and thanks for listening to Batman v. Batuman, a sporadic podcast, by which I mean I'm sorry for taking two months to put out a new episode. But that turned out to be quite an appropriate time because a series I've been enjoying since last year finally released its fourth and final issue after a delay of several months. And it was just as good as the first three, if a bit more action than story-oriented. Predator vs. Judge Dredd vs. Aliens has come to a conclusion after the judges recover from the shock of meeting the aliens and the Predators, I guess who are also technically aliens, outside of Mega City 1. The judges are forced to team up with the Predators in pursuit of the aliens who are heading straight towards the city. Unfortunately for Mega City 1, but fortunately for us readers, the aliens manage to get into the city and things get pretty crazy from there. But while the creative team on this book has been trying for months to catch up on their finale, I've been catching up on plenty of other reading, mostly from DC and its Rebirth line. First off, Greg Rucka's superb run on Wonder Woman has come to an end. A new writer will take up the mantle as of the next issue, number 26. Rucka's 25-issue take on Diana of Themyscira has been really interesting, in part because of the retconning of her relationship to her home island and the gods after leaving to fulfill her destiny, and in part because of how Rucka split the series between even-numbered issues in Wonder Woman's past and odd-numbered issues dealing with the present. Rucka's rebirth contribution has been a heartfelt and supremely satisfying take on the character. The past and present stories both grew on me towards the end of the first arcs and only got better from there. Half the series has been collected in trade paperback so far, and the last two books will be out later this year, if you're looking to grab them. The final issue was a really nice bow on this era of Wonder Woman, and I think it'll be a standard for a contained Wonder Woman story for years to come. Also, I'll talk about the Wonder Woman movie in a bit, but like I said, I got a bunch of Rebirth stuff to talk about first. Just like Wonder Woman, The Flash by Josh Williamson has gone from, yeah, I'll check this out, to full-fledged, I gotta read this as soon as I get home from the store, levels of awesome. The first arc was longer than most of Marvel or DC's typical story arcs. The Flash's was something like eight or nine issues. After getting his footing with that initial story, Williamson has been outdoing himself with every new issue. He had a great take on The Flash's rogues, which is pretty hard to do after dozens of writers have tackled that group of villains in almost every conceivable way. After that, Williamson explored Barry Allen's relationships, demonstrating his emotional range and rising above the canned drama that too often makes up the panels between fights and superhero comics. He then followed that up with an amazing couple of issues crossing over with Batman in a story called The Button that I'll talk about shortly. But the last three issues of The Flash, uh, 23, 24, and now 25, have all been tremendous. 23 and 24 are more or less a team-up with the Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, who came to Central City for Barry Allen's birthday. It wouldn't be a superhero birthday without a supervillain ambush, but the best part of those two issues is after that fight, as Barry and Hal just kind of hang out and catch up a bit. Williamson is one of the better dialogue writers among DC's current batch of authors, and these issues highlight that. As a bonus, the three artists who have worked on the series, and whose names I'm probably saying wrong, Carmine D. Gian Domenico, David Gianfelice, and Ryan Sook have been pumping out some of the best art between DC or Marvel. Shout out to Otto Schmidt on Green Arrow as well, but these three guys just blow my mind in every issue. Between the art and the writing, all of these creators are going to leave a huge legacy on The Flash whenever they wrap up their run. And since I mentioned Green Arrow, let's get to that. My favorite Rebirth series continues to be my favorite Rebirth series. Benjamin Percy's writing is really smart and thought-provoking stuff, but it's also given us some of the most intense action of any Green Arrow books I've ever read. It's political, suspenseful, it's fun, and what so many comics aspire but fail to be, relevant. I really can't recommend this series enough, especially with Percy's great writing, 
and Otto Schmidt and Juan Ferreira's Stunning Art. I should also point out that there's a new arc starting in issue 26 that's an homage to the classic Green Arrow Green Lantern series and the hard-traveling heroes arc, where those two guys drive across the country doing good all over America. Um, this arc's also going to be called Card Traveling Heroes, and if you need an excuse or a good place to jump into Green Arrow, start with issue 26. Another comic I want to talk about that's technically not under the Rebirth umbrella, even though it's from DC, is The Forge. The Forge is a one-off issue that sets up a bunch of big stuff that DC has planned for the summer. Scott Snyder, who wrote Batman before Tom King and made a name for himself as probably the best part of DC's New 52, the publishing line before Rebirth, is writing The Forge as well as most of the summer event stuff. The Forge focuses on weird, possibly supernatural forces, as well as some of DC's most powerful villains plotting against the status quo of the DC universe in a far more sinister way than we've ever seen before. Batman and Green Lantern independently realize that something's going on and start investigating, and meanwhile Hawkman starts having strange nightmares that he senses are more than nightmares, and wonders if they're connected to his ancient past and some weird stuff he saw thousands of years ago. My half-assed description aside, this was a great book. The writing's great, the art's great, even though it's weird to have three artists with such different styles join forces in one book like this. But, like I said, The Forge is a great standalone issue, even though it's technically a setup. It's also a good primer for the DC Universe. Also, Batman has a Batcave on the moon. Go figure. DC's been ramping up the crossovers lately, but the biggest one thus far, at least in terms of the issues involved, has been Justice League vs. Suicide Squad, written by Flash author Josh Williamson. Over the course of six independent issues, as well as a couple Justice League and Suicide Squad issues that served as prologue, epilogue, and background, the crossover actually wrapped up a few months ago, but I'm bringing it up because DC just released the collection in one book, and it is a good book. The story started off in a straightforward fashion as the Suicide Squad's on an international mission that results in a ton of collateral damage. As good guys do, the Justice League arrives to aid humanitarian and rescue efforts. When the Justice League finds the Suicide Squad there, the two groups immediately get tense and have a standoff. To my visual and emotional delight, they do battle, until Amanda Waller, handler of the Suicide Squad, notifies them and the Justice League that a rogue group of former Suicide Squad members has emerged and is posing a greater threat than she could have ever imagined. With a mysterious figure backing them, this rogue squad starts committing some heinous acts and forces the Justice League to team up with the Suicide Squad. This crossover was the least relevant to the machinations of the DC Universe of all the crossovers that have been published so far, but it's also the most fun and enjoyable one. And as I mentioned earlier, Josh Williamson's one of the better dialogue writers in comics today, which is already fun in The Flash, but gets really interesting as he plays with the entire Justice League and some of their most notable enemies in the squad. Considering the Justice League movies coming out in a few months, and Suicide Squad, for better or worse, was one of the most recent DC movies, this Justice League vs. Suicide Squad book is a great one to familiarize or reacquaint yourself with some of the characters you'll be seeing a lot more of on the movie screens. Doesn't hurt that it's a blast to read, either. And the final comic I want to talk about, which is half the title of this podcast and sorta but not really my namesake, Batman. Tom King has emerged as one of the biggest names in comics over the last couple of years, and while his Batman run has had a couple of so-so issues, he's really taken The Dark Knight to some interesting places. He wrote two excellent issues to cross over with The Flash in the Button miniseries I mentioned earlier. The Button was the first major return to the Rebirth event that kicked off DC's current publishing endeavor. Basically, Batman starts investigating some weird, cosmic, magic, who knows what kinds of mysterious forces that are behind the dimensional shuffle which affected the DC universe. There are two Supermans, two Wally West Flashes, and plenty of other weirdness that the Dark Knight starts looking into. With the help of The Flash, Barry Allen, not Wally West, 
The two heroes realize that everything is likely connected to Flashpoint Crisis, an alternate reality from a Jeff Johns miniseries of the same name. This leads to Flash and Batman actually traveling to that alternate reality, and, well, it wouldn't be fair to paraphrase everything that happens. I suggest you just snag those issues or grab the collection whenever DC puts that out. Back to Tom King and his Batman series, though. The two issues following the button, issues 23 and 24, are two of the best standalone issues of Batman that I've read in a while. Especially issue 23. That was a really good one. It features one of the best and most unexpected team-ups in DC Rebirth so far. And if you're looking to the future, Tom King just started an eight-issue arc featuring two of Batman's most prominent villains, who had yet to make their DC Rebirth debuts, the Riddler and the Joker. Before I go from comic books to comic movies, I'd like to focus on magic for a moment. And yes, I mean abracadabra, spells, sorcerers, enchantments, all that kind of Harry Potter stuff when I say magic. Magic has long been part of DC and Marvel history, and was recently established in the Marvel Cinematic Universe through Doctor Strange. One of the better things about Doctor Strange is that it successfully acclimated audiences to accept something that seems childish and goofy, even within a genre of irradiated spiders and alien orphans and spandex fighting crime. And I have a theory that DC and Warner Brothers are gearing mainstream audiences, as well as the DC comic readership, to be prepared for magic alongside more common superheroics just in time for the next batch of DC movies. Because based on what's happening in a bunch of DC comics lately, as well as hints from the upcoming DC Extended Universe movies, I think magic is going to be making its way onto the silver screen in a big, big way for DC. So I'll touch on some of the examples of magic in the Rebirth comics, and then explain why I think they're related to upcoming movies. The Forge, which I just mentioned, does touch on magic in the DC Universe, but in a more supernatural and hard-to-pin-down kind of way. Most importantly, it mentions Nth Metal, the mysterious space metal that Hawkman's powerful mace is constructed from. That mace, because of its nth metal construction, is one of the most devastating weapons in the DC Universe. It can hurt or destroy stuff that Superman's hardest punch couldn't dent. Plus, the forge hints at something unnatural within the nth metal and or wherever it originated from. I'm sure we're going to learn way more when the metal event starts, but until then I'm counting it as an example. Wonder Woman has long faced magical foes, and indeed her mythological powers and weapons have technically been magical in most DC continuities, or at least whenever they're addressed in much detail. In the last few issues of Wonder Woman, magic and or mythology has popped up as part of the reason Diana can't go home or even find the island of Themyscira. Magic is also responsible for the transformation of the archaeologist Barbara Ann Minerva to the hybrid villain monster Cheetah. The magic in Wonder Woman has been more nuanced than most of the other examples I'm about to talk about, in part because it's harder to understand, uh, it's larger in scale, uh, it's connected to Greek mythology, and it's also kind of more passive slash part of the world around her, as opposed to examples where sorcerers and magicians are running around actually casting spells. Next example, Green Arrow. Typically a very down-to-earth series, but it recently featured an arc about how a secret cult believes that the city of Seattle was built on a series of ley lines, which are magical channels running through the earth. The cult identifies five key points that make the shape of a pentagram, go figure, and they try to destroy the city in order to connect those five points and unlock the dark magic of those ley lines for their own nefarious purposes. Trinity, a series featuring the adventures of Wonder Woman, Batman, and Superman, recently brought magic into the mix as part of an ominous plan against those three characters. Three of their greatest enemies also team up to form an unholy trinity against them, and acknowledge that magic and fate are binding those three heroes together. In the series Titans, which focuses on some of the original Teen Titans as they transition to more serious crime fighting, literally had magic in its first arc. 
That story focused on the mystical villain Abracadabra and how magic was affecting Wally West and his memories after the rebirth event resulted in two Wally Wests. Detective Comics, which features Batman outside of the regular Batman series, recently had Zatanna, the Justice League's most notable magician and top hat model, show up to help him out. She and her magician father also helped train Batman in the basics of the mystical arts. She helps Batman take down a magical threat in Gotham, and establishes that even the Dark Knight has to face magic from time to time. The Rebirth event itself is still being unwrapped by DC, but there are clearly elements of a reality versus magic struggle. It's hard to speculate what Jeff Johns and the other head honchos at the company are planning to do with their upcoming Rebirth event-centered stories, but it's safe to assume that magic will play some, if not a crucial part. But why does all the stuff happening in comics that 50,000 people read matter so much? The examples I just discussed form a pattern. I think the comics are hinting at how magic is going to affect and play a part in the DC Cinematic Universe, occasionally in the spotlight, never quite as crucial as other things that we're used to seeing, but still quite prominent. Most importantly, I think DC Comics and film are going to use magic to address the so-called Superman problem. By the Superman problem, I'm referring to what your lazy friend means when they say Superman is boring. Why do people think Superman is boring? To put it very simply, he's unstoppable. For slightly more nuance, Superman's too strong, too powerful, impossible to defeat without kryptonite, which itself is often employed just as a magic bullet, thematic pun intended, by writers to fix plots that would otherwise be missing a third act due to Superman beating everyone up before the climax. So yeah, Superman can't be beaten, so how can he be interesting? Where's the relatability? Where's the underdog draw? The thrill of victory is lost when there's no chance of defeat, right? So Superman's boring. Well, first of all, the same could be said about 98% of comic book protagonists. When's the last time a good guy died? Well, permanently anyway. Shout out to Barry Allen for lasting a couple of decades in comic book heaven. But back to Superman. While this might not be news to some of you, Kryptonite is not his only weakness. Superman is just as vulnerable to magic. In part to address this issue, and in part because it had never really been established before as far as I know, Mark Waid added magic to the list of Kal-El's weaknesses 20 years ago in the seminal book Kingdom Come. So now, even the lamest Harry Potter character could topple the Man of Steel, because the dude is pretty much useless against magic. Zack Snyder's Man of Steel and Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice featured Henry Cavill as a more conflicted and thoughtful Superman, to much criticism. But the biggest criticism, especially in the latter film, is that Superman's just too hard to fight. Unless someone has kryptonite, what's the point of even watching a Superman movie? Well, I think DC intends to bring magic into its cinematic universe in order to make Superman's fights more even-handed, and therefore more compelling to watch, without having to resort to kryptonite every half hour. By broadly reintroducing magic into DC Comics, I think that the company is trying to refresh those who know about Superman's magic weakness, and inform those who didn't know about its existence. And there are also hints from upcoming DC movies which lend credence to my theory here. DC long ago announced its film slate, and that announcement included a Captain Marvel aka Shazam movie. Captain Marvel is the magical super adult conjured by a kid named Billy Batson every time he shouts, Shazam! A bolt of magical lightning strikes him and turns him into the hero or back to Billy every time he yells it. Now, there's been little to no news about that movie aside from the casting of its villain, Black Adam, who will be played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Personally, I think they should cast Terry Crews as Captain Marvel, because I can't think of anyone else with the same levels of physique or ability to play fun yet intimidating quite like Terry Crews. Um, but anyway, Black Adam was cast, and then no updates have popped up since, leaving the Shazam movie kind of on the back burner for Warner Brothers. 
However, a couple months ago, DC and Warner Brothers reiterated that The Rock was going to be Black Adam and that he would be facing Superman whenever they make another Superman solo movie or possibly in a later Justice League movie. And that's huge news. Not only because the villain for another movie is being rushed into earlier movies before his heroic rivals even introduced, I think DC wants to do this because Black Adam has very similar powers to Captain Marvel, meaning that he's magical. Meaning he could probably kick Superman's ass. And aside from how cool it would be to watch Henry Cavill and Dwayne Johnson duke it out, it's the most notable hint to this point that DC wants magic and wants it as soon as possible in order to make their much maligned Superman more relatable slash interesting, and also to solve the problem of having an unstoppable, unbeatable protagonist removing any element of danger from its future movies. And let's keep talking about movies. This year is shaping up to be a good one for geeky films. We have Justice League and Thor Ragnarok at the end of the year, both of which look solid and will hopefully outclass their direct predecessors, Dark World and Batman v Superman. But I'll be happy if either movie is almost as good as the two movies that Marvel and DC already released this year, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and Wonder Woman. Despite what I heard from a lot of people prior to seeing it, Guardians 2 is not better than the first movie. Despite having the same creative team as the first movie, Guardians 2 felt like it had been handed to a new director who was then given no creative freedom. The movie feels really safe and sanitized compared to the first one, with multiple moments that challenged my suspension of disbelief. There were also some character inconsistencies, most notably with Drax, who comes off as forced comic relief more often than not. But hey, didn't I say this was a good movie a minute ago? I did, and it is. It's just a couple notches below the first Guardians of the Galaxy. Almost every character and or their relationships have more depth this time around, and there's more of a focus on the sci-fi elements of the universe, which I really enjoyed. Uh, also, there's no gargantuanly stupid moment like in the first movie, when the entire Nova Corps fleet use their ships to form a giant space laser net that obviously results in a chain reaction explosion killing every single pilot and wiping out the whole fleet. I also applaud the use of Fleetwood Mac's The Chain in a pivotal scene. Music was a big part of the first movie, and on that count, the sequel might have done an even better job. While my criticisms may sound like they almost outweigh my compliments here, I reiterate, the movie is good and worth seeing. It's just that next to the first movie, which is a top five comic book movie for me, Guardians 2 just felt lazier and a little less organic. On its own, it's an entertaining, sci-fi light popcorn movie, and there's nothing wrong with that. And now, to a much more maligned cinematic universe, let's switch over to DC and the hit Wonder Woman. Oh, this movie was exciting. For about the first half hour, I was kind of tense and nervous, waiting for odd writing or story structure or narrative or creative choices to detract from the movie, like the overly criticized but not necessarily very good Batman v Superman suffered from. But as time went on, I relaxed and started to soak in the awesomeness of Wonder Woman. As far as origin stories go, the movie does a good job of checking off boxes without feeling routine or like something we've sat through already. The actors, both the good guys and the bad guys, all played their parts really well. The chemistry between Wonder Woman and her allies was so good. The writing is sharp, and the movie had a great pace, taking Wonder Woman from Themyscira to England to the front lines of World War I. There's a great narrative buildup to the third act, and although I already knew who the villain was beforehand, the story still developed really well and hit the right emotional notes. Wonder Woman is still in theaters, and if you're one of the 10 people who hasn't seen it yet, friggin' go see it! Also, I'll bring up the point I made in my last episode when I mentioned Wonder Woman's line in the most recent Justice League trailer, where she says, quote, They said the age of heroes would never come again, end quote. Since this movie took place during World War I, and there are certainly going to be sequels, I hope DC keeps her in the past for the next movie, and just fast-forwards a bit to World War II. If they do that, they could have a mini Justice League movie with Wonder Woman and the Justice Society of America fighting Hitler and the Nazis. 
The Justice Society of America was the predecessor to the Justice League, both literally and in the continuity of the DC Universe. If you watch Legends of Tomorrow Season 2 on Netflix, which you should because it's better than the first season, you'll see some of those Justice Society of America characters in action. It'd be a really cool way to introduce new characters into the DC Cinematic Universe while also setting up Wonder Woman as kind of a rookie hero learning how to operate in a group setting to contrast with her leadership position in the present day of Justice League. Between that and my idea for Terry Crews as Captain Marvel, DC should consider hiring me as an official brainstormer, or I'd, you know, just steal those ideas, I wouldn't mind. Anyway, that's enough DC. Let's get to my favorite and only segment, my summary and review of a Marvel book as I try to get to know Marvel half as well as I know DC. Really quick, before I dive into this summary and review, I want to reiterate that while yes, I'm going to spoil the bejesus out of this book, I'm also going to leave out a bunch of details, I'm going to breeze through some complex parts, and I'm not going to reveal everything that happens, because while I am summarizing this, I want you to get the book if it sounds interesting to you, and then as you read it, find new and exciting things, instead of just me going on and on about every note and nuance this time around. So yeah, keep that in mind, and let's get to it. For this episode, I read Mystique by Brian K. Vaughn. It was 13 issues long, with art by Jorge Lucas, Michael Ryan, and Manuel Garcia. The version I got is called Mystique by Brian K. Vaughn, Ultimate Collection, for anyone as technical as myself. The story begins, fittingly given the political news of recent months, at the Kremlin in Moscow. A blonde woman in a cocktail dress hurls herself out of a window and starts running away from the building. She's stopped by a hulking dude in a trench coat named Steinbeck. They have a brief altercation before Steinbeck, an arms smuggler, reveals himself to be a mutant of the fire-breathing variety. He breathes fire, and the lady in the cocktail dress is no more. Over in New York, Professor Charles Xavier is being interviewed via satellite by Ted Koppel on Nightline. Professor X is in his office at the Xavier Institute for Gifted Youngsters, and has apparently revealed to the world that he is a telepathic mutant and leader of the X-Men. Almost immediately after the interview starts, however, a telepathic mutant agent named Shortpack sends a mental message to the professor, informing him that their X-Men agent in Moscow is dead. Xavier, who can now walk, by the way, in whatever Marvel universe this is, jets to Baltimore and calls upon his old friend Forge, a former X-Men. Forge is a mutant engineer who can build practically anything with anything. Xavier needs Forge not to replace his lost agent or even to build anything. Rather, Professor X needs Forge to help him recruit a new spy. Not just any spy, but a most-wanted mutant terrorist on the run from the authorities. Forge's former lover, a mutant named Mystique. The professor knows that Raven Darkholm, aka Mystique, can't really be reformed, but he still needs her shape-shifting and espionage experience to stop Steinbeck, the pyrokinetic arms-dealing mutant. Although they used to be close, Forge is skeptical of Mystique, but he does agree to help the professor find and recruit her. Mystique is actually in the midst of some espionage already. She has tracked down a scientist who developed a device that could detect shape-shifting mutant genes, a weirdly specific danger for her. She unlocks the safe in his apartment where he keeps the prototype by shape-shifting parts of her inner ear so she can hear the tumblers in the lock as she opens it. But the safe is empty, the prototype is missing, and agents from the Department of Homeland Security burst into arrest her. A dozen heavily armed DHS agents corner Mystique, and she does what she does best, shape-shifting to look like a little girl to confuse and distract the agents before attacking them. No matter what shape Mystique takes, she has the same mass, making it easy for little girl Mystique to take down most of the agents. She manages to rip off their commander's riot helmet and shape-shifts to look like him as they get tangled up on the ground. 
The other agents aren't sure who to shoot when one of the two commanders yells at the agents to shoot them both, since he's wearing body armor and Mystique is just making her body shaped like body armor. The agents comply and blast away. Both commanders go down, one comes up. Getting shot from point-blank range with body armor on is so painful that it can make you pass out. Mystique, on the other hand, just had to shift her organs into her legs and feet so that the bullets barely hurt her as they pass through. This doesn't buy her much time, unfortunately. The bullets still hurt, after all. And the real commander starts waking up, so Mystique leaps out the window and crashes onto the street below. She isn't that badly hurt, but she can't get away before more DHS agents arrive and arrest her. Mystique is taken to a flying prison ship that looks like the Avengers airship. A Department of Homeland Security agent starts interrogating her, but Mystique aggravates him, explaining that she can't be responsible for whatever crime they arrested her for. The agent disagrees and decides to punish her with the electric chair. She's sitting in a normal chair, but the agent reaches over and touches the chair, electrocuting it with his touch and revealing himself to be a mutant. Luckily, a deus ex machina in the form of Magneto appears to save her before another wave of electricity. The masked mutant Magneto rescues Mystique and leads her to a waiting airship hovering adjacent to the DHS ship. Once they board, Magneto removes his mask, revealing no Magneto, but rather the brilliant telepath Professor Charles Xavier. Mystique can't believe that Professor X just pulled off such a daring rescue. She teases him about it, but the professor's all business. He informs her that he only rescued her to recruit her as a spy. Her former Flame Forge is also on the rescue ship and offers her his mission and moral support, to which she responds with fisticuffs. Despite this rocky start, they get back to New York and the professor's apartment in Brooklyn. Rather than try to restrain Mystique, Forge offers her a tricky compromise. He and the professor manage to get their hands on the shape-shifting mutant tracking device I mentioned earlier. In return for her help, Forge will jam that device and any others like it, but if she goes rogue, he'll hand it over to the government. With very little choice, Mystique agrees and learns of her mission. Apparently, the Soviet Union had designed their own version of Sentinel robots, the giant mutant-detecting and killing machines that you all remember from the X-Men movie Days of Future Past. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, some of the Russian Sentinels had gone missing, and Professor X had tracked them up to their sale to a third party by the pyrokinetic mutant arms dealer Steinbeck. That third party turns out to be the Cuban government of Fidel Castro, since this book came out a few years ago. And Professor X doesn't want to send the X-Men on a mission that could potentially turn into a Bay of Pigs-style international incident, hence his need for an agent like Mystique, who could find and destroy the Sentinels more discreetly. Forge gives her a Game Boy Advance modified to set off an electromagnetic pulse charge capable of taking out the Sentinels. With that, and a reminder that she's needed but not trusted, Mystique is off to Cuba. Her entry through customs goes less than smoothly, and Mystique has to shapeshift into Fidel Castro as a last resort just to escape the airport. She gets a telepathic communication from her field handler, Shortpack, the same handler who was in charge of the first agent whose mission ended tragically in the opening of this story. Shortpack directs her to his car outside the airport, and when she finds him, he turns out to live up to his name. Shortpack is a telepathic mutant that is all of six inches tall. Since he obviously can't drive, Shortpack employs a local driver, but as Mystique reverts to her normal purple mutant form, the driver pulls a gun on her and tries to collect the dead or alive bounty on one of the world's most famous mutant terrorists. Mystique is too fast, however, and she knocks the driver out with a precision punch. She and Shortpack head to his safe house, where he briefs her on her mission and his leads on where the sentinels purchased by Castro might be hidden. Shortpack's intel points towards General Luis Diosville, a member of the Cuban secret police. Shortpack believes that General Diosville will be arresting protesters at a pro-mutant rally, so Mystique shifts into a seductive form and goes off to find the general. 
She finds him at the protest, but before Mystique can employ the powers of seduction, the secret police start beating up marchers. Already miffed that Professor X wants her to use nonviolent means, Mystique uses the opportunity to flex her muscles. She shapeshifts from seductive lady to 1980s wrestler and clobbers General Diosville. Before the general can figure out who's hitting him, Mystique shifts back to the seductive lady form and pretends to be a naive, concerned citizen. The general tries to take advantage of this lovely good Samaritan and karmatically gets beaten up yet again in his apartment. Mystique interrogates him for the location of the Sentinels, restrains him, and then shapeshifts into the general as she heads out to destroy the giant robots. As she leaves his apartment, though, a mysterious observer watches and calls an even more mysterious third party to inform them that their plan is in motion. Then, the Watcher leaves to follow Mystique. Our protagonist gets to the secret Sentinel base and manages to get through all of the security checkpoints as the General. Deep within the base, she finds her target. The two Soviet Sentinels are massive, ominous machines that Cuban scientists are almost done updating to be even more effective mutant killers. Unfortunately for Mystique, the base alarm starts going off before she can get close enough to the robots to set off her Game Boy slash EMP bomb. She's relieved to discover that her presence is not the reason for the alarm, but less relieved to find out that pro-mutant rebels, including some she had literally just saved from General Diosville earlier, were storming the base. The mysterious figures watching her leave the General's apartment earlier had simply been hoping to follow the General and lucked out that Mystique had gone to the same secret location they'd hoped to follow him to. This happy coincidence is of little consolation to Mystique, as those rebels are convinced that she's the evil general. Our bemused protagonist knocks out a few soldiers trying to protect what they think is their general, and then reveals her true form to the rebels. But things continue to get worse, as a soldier manages to activate the Sentinels and launch them before Mystique or the rebels can stop him. Since these are old, Soviet-era Sentinels, they aren't as smart or fast as the nightmarish, dystopian, Days of Future Past Sentinels. These simpler machines require way more user input and programming. So rather than noticing and attacking Mystique as a mutant in their midst, the Sentinels start flying to their pre-programmed destination, Havana. General Diosville had intended for them to fly to the capital and start killing the largest population of mutants in the country. Mystique realizes that the easiest way to stop them at this point would still be with the Game Boy EMP bomb that Forge gave her, but with the charge going off by the central computer controlling the Sentinels rather than blowing it up by the Sentinels themselves. She asks the rebels to hold off incoming soldiers and goes to the basement to find the central computer. Unfortunately, things aren't quite that simple. As the rebel leader and Mystique are kicking down doors to find Sentinel Central, they discover a mutant holding cell full of kids. The rebel leader's sister was imprisoned there, and the kids tell him where to find her, but a bunch of Cuban soldiers barge in. Mystique does probably the coolest thing I've ever seen in a Marvel comic, and shapeshifts herself two extra arms and an extra face. She picks up four guns, and with eyes literally on the back of her head, Mystique takes out all of the soldiers. She decimates a squad of troops and starts beating them up with the guns after she runs out of ammo. The battle and the extreme shapeshifting take a toll on her, though, and Mystique happens to lean on a wall, right next to the door for the central computer. Ta-da! But again, not so simple. The rebel leader's sister, a young mutant named Evangelina, has the power to control metal and complex machinery. Her power is fueling the Sentinels as they fly to Havana against her will as she is restrained in some sort of weird, evil, cerebro-looking device in the computer room. Evangelina explains that she can't really control her power while hooked up to that machine, but using the EMP Game Boy Bomb could damage her brain while she's hooked up to it. So instead of that, Evangelina asks Mystique to take the easiest and ugliest way out. A bullet. It's a bad time for moral conundrums as two unstoppable Sentinels are a few dozen miles away from Havana, 
but the rebel leader arrives on the scene and saves our heroine the trouble. He tearfully shoots his own sister, painfully aware of how ruinous the guilt of powering the machines about to kill thousands of mutants in Havana would be even worse than the guilt he feels for shooting her. He still feels horrible, obviously, and tries to share his sister's fate, but Mystique punches the gun out of his hand and knocks him out so the other rebels can carry him to safety. The Sentinels crash near Havana, and the city's mutants are safe. The rebels and the rescued mutant kids blast their way out of the base, led by Mystique. The base self-destructs and destroys the evidence of the Sentinel lab and mutant prison. Mystique and her group get away, and the mission is seemingly over. Mystique goes back to Short Pack's safe house to debrief. She feels conflicted, wondering if Professor X wanted her to be his agent precisely for those hypothetical would-you-kill-a-kid-to-save-thousands-of-lives moments. Short Pack reminds her that with Steinbeck still at large, there may be even more troubling times ahead, and Mystique feels the urge to drink. At a bar nearby, she's approached by an American named Shepard, who apparently knows exactly who she is, even in her going-out-for-a-drink shapeshifted form. Shepard offers Mystique a vague opportunity, continue working for Charles Xavier, but occasionally add a mission for Shepard into the mix. He seals the deal by offering her a way to elude the shape-shifting tracking device the Professor and Forge are using. In case you're wondering if this is too good to be true and that Shepard might be bad news, literally the following page is him walking through a portal to an unknown location and telling a mysterious hooded figure that their plan is in motion. Mystique heads from Cuba to New York, where Professor X is waiting to personally thank her for saving the Cuban mutants and taking down the two Sentinels. In yet another real-life politically relevant move, her next mission takes Mystique to Pyongyang, North Korea, where she is nearly caught stealing documents from the office of the Supreme Leader. An over-eager secret policeman narrows down the suspects to an old man, a young woman, and a little boy, holding them all at gunpoint and accusing one of them of being a spy. The policeman threatens to shoot them all, when a statue behind him leaps forward and knocks him out. After the statue shifts back into Mystique, she releases the three prisoners and starts fighting her way out of the most secure compound in North Korea. With the Supreme Leader's documents in her possession, Mystique escapes and makes it back to New York, to end another successful mission. She debriefs with Professor X, and the documents she gives him contain information about a supervirus strain of smallpox that could kill millions of people, mutant and otherwise. To make matters somehow worse, the virus is sort of sentient, and is using an unknown human being as a host, from which it specifically targets and strikes other people. And so, just back from North Korea, Mystique immediately leaves for South Africa, where the virus host body is suspected to be. And indeed it is, hunting down the manufacturer of the virus. Forge, the Q to Mystique's James Bond, gives her a tube of lipstick slash a tracking device, a watch slash biometric shield for viruses, and a bobby pin slash stun gun. Mystique is stopped at the airport by Shepard, who wants her to carry out Professor X's mission as planned, but to sneak back a small sample of the virus for Shepard and his mysterious hooded boss. She doesn't agree or refuse his request, and Shepard sneaks away to portal back to his probably evil unknown secret lair. In South Africa, Mystique gets to Short Pack's local safe house, and the pint-sized handler starts filling her in on mission details. She has to infiltrate the compound of the virus's creator and try to find a secure sample for Professor X to analyze. She sets off and the mission is going smoothly until Mystique finds a dead security guard, possibly killed by a mutant. She works her way to the virus inventor's room and finds him on the floor, very dead. The weird virus host body mutant person is crouched in the corner, seemingly upset that it hurt the scientist slash its father. Mystique tries to take down the mutant host, but eases off when she realizes that the sentient virus is trying to communicate with her through the host body. 
It claims to be a freedom fighter like Mystique, and flees the scene as our protagonist starts to show symptoms of the virus and passes out. Shortpack starts freaking out when Mystique fails to report in, and starts sending a mental SOS to Professor X. Luckily, Mystique's body and shape-shifting DNA are uniquely suited to fight off an intense infection like this wacky virus. She manages to regain consciousness, and stumbles back to the safe house, where Shortpack diagnoses her with a severe case of encephalitis. Uh, encephalitis is an inflammation of the brain with symptoms like fever, dizziness, confusion, seizures, and hallucinations for anyone like me who is wondering. Despite the pain she's in, Mystique knows that no one else can stop, let alone survive an encounter with the virus and its host. She gears up for the hunt while Shortpack tracks the virus host. It's heading towards the airport in a car, making Mystique's window to stop it even smaller. She grabs a motorcycle and cuts the virus off on the highway. They fight for a bit, but as the virus host starts to get the better of her, Mystique resorts to trickery and gets the virus mutant to step in the path of a speeding vehicle. She retrieves a sample of the virus from the host body and slinks off into the night as emergency responders arrive. Unfortunately, the virus mutant is still alive and coughs in the face of a police officer. Dun dun dun. Things somehow get worse as Mystique returns to Shortpack's safe house to find her tiny handler in the threatening fist of the virus mutant. The host body somehow became a bigger threat in this series than the two Soviet sentinels in Havana. Anyway, the host demands that Mystique hand over the virus sample, and when she does so, it throws the vial back at Mystique, breaking it and exposing her to its contents. The host body starts taunting Shortpack by describing the symptoms as Mystique goes through them. It drops its guard and leans in to gloat over her, only to discover via a fist to its face that Mystique faked her symptoms. After a short battle, Mystique uses the bobby pin slash taser Forge gave her earlier to subdue the virus mutant host. Shortpack telepathically calls for a cleanup crew, and Mystique reveals that the actual virus sample is still safely in her possession, while the vial the host threw at her was a decoy. Nice. Instead of taking the real sample directly to New York, Mystique meets with Shepard again, who wanted her to hand the sample over to him. She refuses until he tells her what he and his boss want it for. Shepard himself refuses to divulge anything, but invites her to meet with both of them after one final mission. They split up, and Shepard portals to his boss's secret location, where another double agent is reporting in, apparently via evil villain Skype. That double agent is none other than Shortpack, who is somehow getting away with this despite regularly being in mental contact with the most powerful telepath in the world, Charles Xavier. Mystique flies back to New York and hangs out with Forge in lieu of a debriefing but their relaxation is cut short by an amber alert for a mutant child, kidnapped by his human father after a nasty divorce. Forge and Mystique get to work quickly. He scours the web for intel, and she follows up on his initial leads. They manage to track the kid and his dad to an apartment, and Mystique sneaks in to get the kid without alerting his dad, who's armed with a shotgun. As it turns out, though, this kid's mutation is a form of psychic suggestion. He forced his father to abduct him so he wouldn't have to live with his mom. When the kid realizes that Mystique and Forge want to take him back home, he immediately forces them to fight. Mystique isn't affected by his mind control, but has to defend herself against the hypnotized Forge. The former lovers trade blows all over the house. She briefly has the upper hand, but a mind-controlled military veteran like Forge is a tough opponent, especially when he's not holding back. He starts choking Mystique, but of course right then something snaps in his head and he manages to break the mind control. The police are inbound, alerted by several minutes of fighting that ravaged the apartment. Before they arrive, Mystique disappears, and the shaken Forge is left with the incapacitated mutant boy and his dazed and confused father. Later, Mystique and Forge meet and have a weird heart-to-heart. -heart. 
They've known each other for so long that they know each other's weaknesses better than their own. But despite their intimacy, they share a mutual distrust due to their views on mutant human relations, as well as Forge's involvement with the X-Men. And they both know it's too late to change each other. On that uneasy note, Mystique heads to Brazil for one final mission on behalf of Professor X. Her target, likely due to Short Pact's secret double agency, turns out to be the secretive Mr. Shepard. Shepard greets Mystique and offers her an ultimatum, a lifetime protection guarantee from governmental and private surveillance in return for the simple favor of killing Professor X. There's no love lost between Mystique and the leader of the X-Men, especially with her status as a freedom fighter and his as ambassador for mutant kind. But she also knows that his survival is good for the mutants, if not good for her. It's on this uncertain note, as Mystique weighs her past and future against the biggest decision of her life, that the story ends. Freedom, via double agency and betrayal, or insecurity, for fulfilling the professor's mission. Mystique must decide alone, not for the first time. Okay, well, that ending isn't quite what I expected. For such a long read, about twice as long as most of the stuff I summarize and review, I expected this to have more of an ending than an okay new writer and artist coming in cliffhanger. I mean, Shepard and his mysterious boss not being revealed? Sure, that's fine. I don't mind having that be the focus of whoever continued this run on Mystique. But the fact that the story starts off with the pyro-mutant Steinbeck killing Professor X's agent and having more Soviet Sentinels for sale seems like a pretty big thing to not only leave unresolved, but to not even address again after the Cuba arc of this series. I'm surprised that the equivalent of two trade paperbacks just ended up treading water as Mystique did some mini-arc missions that meant very little in the grand scheme of things, and barely touched on the instigating story arc. Anyway, I just had to get that off my chest. This was actually a really fun read. Brian K. Vaughn's a very talented writer, and his Doctor Strange book I read a few episodes back was one of the better books I've summarized and reviewed. He has a good grasp on the character of Mystique, and the fine line between her being an unforgivable terrorist and whitewashing her actions. Her conversations with Forge bring out Vaughn's best writing, and those scenes really breathe life into an otherwise enjoyable spy thriller. Again, my main and really the only criticism of the writing is how Vaughn keeps everything so open-ended instead of wrapping up some loose ends, and leaving his successor on the series with more freedom to take on the character, rather than deal with old storylines. The way things petered out didn't really make me want to read the next issue. Something similar was done by Warren Ellis in the Moon Knight series I also summarized and reviewed a while back. That six-issue run was mostly one-off stories with a light connection that made it easier for Ellis to jump off the series in a clean way, and also kept me interested in wanting to read the next issue after he left. The art in this collection was adequate, with few attention-grabbing panels or splash pages. The action is very well drawn, though, and the art is consistent despite having three different guys work on the series. Like I said, I got this run in one book, and if you're a fan of Brian K. Vaughn, or the character of Mystique, or more mature X-Men adjacent stories, I definitely recommend it. Just don't expect a completely satisfying package, despite its length. There is quality here, but just not much closure. Alright, that does it for this episode of Batman v Batuman. Thanks for keeping up with me despite the sporadic updates the last few months. Full disclosure, I've been planning a cross-country move since April, and I'll be leaving Milwaukee for Seattle in about a week. Hopefully after I settle in there, I can try to get back to a monthly schedule with these things instead of whatever the hell schedule I'm doing now. And I promise I'll keep an eye out for Oliver Queen once I get to Seattle. Anyway, if you have any questions, comments, or mean things to say, I'm on Twitter at BatmanVBatuman. If you like the music, check out more like it at seedmole.bandcamp.com. Again, thanks for listening. See you next time.
I am pretentious. I am always right. I am Batuman. <laughs>